Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Amy Loisel, Assistant Professor of History at Central Connecticut State University. We're discussing Amy's new book, Beyond Norma Ray, How Puerto Rican and Southern White Women Fought for a Place in the American Working Class. Beyond Norma Ray examines the ways women demanded both better work conditions and mainstream cultural representations that included their point of view and the popular Hollywood image of working-class women displayed in the celebrated film, Norma Ray. Amy, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this with you. Of course. You know, but before jumping into the book, uh, you know, very standard NBN question. I just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. So I always start by saying I'm a non-traditional PhD uh, graduate. I was in my 40s when I did my PhD. And so this is my third career. Uh, I started in, uh, after I graduated, I started right away in nine through 12 education. So um, I went to Dartmouth College, which still at the time had like a post-baccalaureate teacher certification because they wanted to support public uh, public ed in higher ed. Um, And I then went through and taught in public high schools, but after I completed my master's, I really wanted to work with more educational justice. And uh, I felt like there were avenues that I I could pursue that pushed even beyond public education. And so I worked for uh, several years with low-income students, uh, pregnant and parenting teenage girls, and uh, historically marginalized students who had not been included in the area's community colleges. And so for several years, I worked with students who really never saw themselves as academics. They did not see themselves succeeding at college. They didn't think that was their space. And to see them really grapple with personally, emotionally, and academically what it meant to become a college student really inspired me to take a look at myself and say, you know, I always wanted to do a PhD and I came from a working class background and getting a college degree meant, what are you gonna do with that? And a PhD was not (laughs) imagined in my family. So I went and got a PhD at 40 inspired by um, by my students really who were taking such big risks for themselves financially, personally, and culturally to to do college. Um, So when I was working on my PhD, uh, and I really decided to commit to uh, creating a book. Some folks nowadays realize how hard it is to publish books in, in academic presses. And so they really see their dissertation as the end of the the process. Uh, I really said, if I'm gonna do this, I'm going to make this dissertation something that's really fairly complex and that I hope to turn into a book. And so I really need to thank a couple people that uh, made this possible. And one is the Coordinating Council for uh, Women in History. It has a special prize just for non-traditional students like myself who, did not follow the conventional, you know, age 18 to 22 bachelor's, 22 to 28, 29 PhD tenure track. And uh, so they have a quite a large financial prize to help non-traditional women historians be able to pursue their, their academic research and not be stuck by some of the kind of financial and um, economic constraints that hold some women back. And I also need to thank the Organization of American Historians because they gave my dissertation the prize in American women's history. And to be honest, I think without those two things, as a middle-aged woman, I don't know if if I'd even be talking about this book. I don't know if this book would even have happened. So I always like to acknowledge that non-traditional women historians and historically marginalized women need systemic support in academia and publishing. (laughs) So, Do you think that by waiting to do a PhD later in life, that it helped you focus in on a subject uh, and and talk about real people in a way that maybe going straight through a PhD, you wouldn't have been able to? I mean, being a non-traditional PhD student and then non-traditional, you know, first, you know, first time book author really shaped the project in a lot of ways. One, I definitely knew I wanted to center 
women. And I knew what that meant because I knew as a woman, how I'd been marginalized or ignored or overlooked in my own workplaces. And I was somebody who was white with a, you know, selective college degree. And I was even kind of swept to the side or sometimes um, not, you know, included in certain kind of, you know, power decisions. Um, so I knew I wanted to center women. I knew I wanted to hone in on women in power <laughs> and, and not just tell women's stories, but also understand how do women navigate systems of power, push on them, what parts of gender and class and and skin color and, and colonial and citizenship status shape how women do that. But also a lot of people outside history might not realize this, but putting Puerto Rican and Southern women together was quite scandalous for many conventional historians. Um, and even though we talk about intersectionality and it's quite, you know, you know, widespread in the mainstream as a term, amongst conventional historians, there's still this idea like there's Caribbean history, there's Southern history, there's US history, and there's these geographic boxes. But because I'd moved through intersectional spaces and not just studied it as a theory, but actually had lived it and had worked in spaces where I was um, one of the only white women or worked in spaces where women of color did, you know, really have the space to express their own points of views and, and how those interacted with like African-American versus Afro-Caribbean versus um, lighter skinned Puerto Rican women versus a white woman like me and that I'd been in those spaces. And so I was comfortable bringing Puerto Rican and Southern women into one history, but there was definite pushback <laughs> from, from some folks. Yeah, I can imagine the, um, you know, there's obviously benefits to the way in which history and, and other disciplines can get so granular, but of course you miss out on on some great comparative aspects and also just the, you know, the intersectional aspects of history that you talk about in the book. Uh, two central figures in your book are, are Gloria Maldonado and Crystal Lee Sutton. Uh, and for listeners, could you introduce these two women and why is it that you choose their lives to examine? So when I started the project, I started by looking up women and workers in the 1970s and the movie Norma Ray kept coming up. Even when I wasn't looking for movies, it just like would come up in constant searches or references. So I eventually found out that that was based on this woman, Crystal Lee. And I knew I wanted to not have her be erased by the movie again. So it th that this movie Norma Ray became so big and created celebrity and status for so many people that participated in it, but then really she got lost behind it. Um, but at the same time, when I started to say, oh, wow, Puerto Rican and Southern women were both really becoming more and more active in the U.S. textile and apparel industry at the same time, I don't want to also erase Puerto Rican women by, again, just focusing on Southern women. So this was kind of this layering effect of how did Norma Ray obscure Crystal Lee? How does this kind of US labor history focus on Southern white women, obscure Puerto Rican women who were maybe not as numerous, but were just as critical to the industry? They were both groups of women were absolutely pivotal to the explosion of the US textile and apparel industry and to how it globalized. So I needed to find a woman that would kind of represent the Puerto Rican needleworkers the same way Crystal Lee was going to kind of represent Southern mill hands. And sifting through the archives, I did find many Puerto Rican women, um, but the, the archives are so fragmented and they tend to really focus on um, groups of women rather than one woman. And so the, the needleworker I found the most information about was Gloria Maldonado because she was very similar to Crystal Lee in the sense that they were both very vocal. They both developed mentors who elevated them in their unions, and they both ended up becoming uh, very articulate and um, we'll say assertive uh, speakers on behalf of women workers. And uh, Gloria Maldonado ended up having many more options because she was in New York City. And New York City had you know, dozens of unions, big labor councils. They were connected to labor studies programs at NYU, Rutgers, uh, even Cornell. And 
Crystal Lee was down in Western North Carolina. And for her, the mills down there had been so successful at social isolation and controlling public education, roads, government, libraries, that she was very isolated. So they had these similarities that I wanted to emphasize being articulate women who wanted something more out of life. Um, but they had these differences because of geography, citizenship, colonial status, and migration that also highlighted, as you mentioned, some of these interesting differences um, across their you know, different types of experiences. Can you give a brief overview of what life was like for women workers in the early mid 20th century and why you focus on women in manufacturing in particular? I really like to emphasize that women have always worked and this is where you get into the idea of gender and how gender and culture influence the way people understand work. So when people think like American workers, they often think men in factories, coal mines, hard hats. And that's that's a very valid, you know, and totally historically accurate, you know, field of labor studies is to look at men in these kinds of big heavy industries, steel and auto industry. But women have always worked and they've always worked for paid labor. And there is a growing field amongst historians, especially feminist historians. And I we have Eileen Boris um, and Emma Amador and uh, many others who look at women and social reproductive labor. So the labor of women doing caregiving, um, child rearing, um, unpaid like elder care, low wage healthcare work. Um, and, um, you know, uh, Catherine Sinisa Choi and Evelyn Nakano Glenn were really cutting edge in, in kind of opening that field. Um, but I was interested in women in manufacturing because it tends to, it's so important to US history. If people understood how the cotton commodity and the cotton commodity trade, and then the making of fabrics and textiles, and then home goods, everything from towels and handkerchiefs. We live in an age of Kleenex, but handkerchiefs were like a huge industry for a long time. Um, and clothing, uh, belts, purses, all of these things, hats, all of these things were made by women and were a core part of, of US industry in the 1900s. Um, and 1800s. So U U.S. global visions, U.S. global expansion, everything was based on this industry that is majority women workers. And yet, because they're not in like masculine heavy industry, it's kind of pushed to the side as if it wasn't as important as like steel and coal. <laughs> but actually, if you look at, you know, 19th and 20th century history, it's the textile and apparel industry that the US actually globalizes on, especially after World War II. They really use textile and apparels to build uh, relationships with Japan and Taiwan and South Korea. Um, so it was absolutely critical. And I wanted to look at that part of manufacturing and also to, to really look at the exploitation to go to the first part of the question is, that for women workers, they are considered naturally inclined to do textile and apparel work, that it's like sewing. So it's, you know, and just like they make, you know, their children's clothes or knit like a baby cap, you know, making 2000 handkerchiefs a day, you know, there's just, is just an extension of their natural feminine inclination. So how exploitation was dependent on, again, these cultural ideas. So I think sometimes, labor studies um, and political economic history in general could really benefit from some more gender analysis because it's really femininity that makes them exploited, so exploited and makes it such an exploitative industry. Um, and then also for women in manufacturing that um, they're still seen as like secondary breadwinners, that the breadwinners are still the man, even if the woman is the primary breadwinner or is a widow or is a woman that hasn't married. The idea is, is that some man somewhere is responsible for her. And I mean, women still couldn't open their own bank accounts or own their own property outright in, in the early 1900s. They needed to have some types of guardianship or a man that had signed off on things or everything went under their husband's name. 
So even their paychecks were often, you know, given to husbands if the husband demanded it, especially in the South and, and in Puerto Rico. Um, and so it was women not only suffered from the exploitation of industry and what kind of just goes along with being in a wage system, but also suffered from this, these ideas of femininity and then also just patriarchal structures that were kind of like, well, your husband or father is really who's taking care of you and um, they really should get the money, not you. What was the, the, the work environment like that, that would have been experienced by someone like Gloria Maldonado and Crystal Lee Sutton? Uh, and, and were their experiences uh, markedly different? Did, did, uh, did Gloria uh, face uh, greater discrimination as, as a result of being Puerto Rican? Uh, what, what, was, what were those different dynamics like? So for for both women, um, there would have been certain similarities, as I mentioned, being in um, a industry deemed feminine and therefore low wage, being in an industry where it was very hard to unionize, that they were both extremely low wage. But at the same time, Puerto Rico and the South had formed these kinds of, and the Northeast had formed three interwoven labor markets. So they were all interconnected. Corporations actually, by the mid 1900s, corporations would have like a factory in Lowell or, you know, Lawrence, Massachusetts, maybe a garment shop in the Bronx um, or Midtown Manhattan, uh, a couple mills that made fabrics down in Georgia and North Carolina. And then they might send their finishing work to Puerto Rico where the women would do certain things like embroidery, finishing work, and edging. So you had companies that had sites all along there. I think sometimes people think NAFTA, 1994, you know, that's when this started to happen. But it really starts in the early 1900s. As soon as companies realized that their Puerto Rican women in the archipelago had serious sewing skills, they immediately started outsourcing um, certain aspects of the manufacturing to them. In the Great Depression, when the employment collapsed on the mainland US, uh, Southern wages dropped. And so a lot of companies start to say, well, we're gonna sh save shipping costs and we're not gonna send our products to Puerto Rico to finish. We can now really cut wages in half in the South and we can get quality work done by Southern women at a cheaper price than we were. And we can avoid the shipping and, you know, transportation issues that you have to deal with, with um, going to the main island of Puerto Rico. So a lot of these were all interconnected. So even though the women didn't know each other, you know, Maldonado and um, Sutton didn't know each other at all. They were not in the same unions but they all worked for these major companies that were interconnected. Um, by the time Maldonado starts working, she's in New York City, but she comes from many generations of Puerto Rican women who, when they're in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico has an exemption to the US minimum wage. So the minimum wage is passed under the New Deal in the 1930s uh, with the Fair Labor Standards Act. And uh, immediately, U.S. industries and Puerto Rican managers. So I always want to say like there's these Puerto Rican managers that are making money off it too. So the U.S. industries and the Puerto Rican managers immediately say Puerto Rico needs to be exempted from the minimum wage. We can't we can't pay the same minimum wage. And it's still true today. The minimum wage is still lower in Puerto Rico. And that's what I talk about when I talk about colonial labor. And what that does, of course, is that it Polls, U.S. manufacturers are like, hey, let's go make stuff in Puerto Rico because it's way cheaper. But it also then pushes Puerto Rican women to say, once word of mouth starts traveling, Puerto, Puerto Rican women start telling each other, you can make more money in New York and Philadelphia. <laughs> so, so this is how labor market manipulations happen. And it's not just happenstance that Puerto Rican women are end up in dense areas like Philadelphia, New York, Hartford, Springfield, Massachusetts, Boston, they go there because that's where there's textile and apparel jobs that they can make more money at than in the islands. So uh, Maldonado is part of that tradition. So by the time she gets a job in her, in, you know, her young womanhood, she 
already is part part of long traditions of unionizing. Um, and the work conditions in New York are much more cramped. So in Maldonado in New York City would have been in small shops. If you go to Midtown Manhattan, um, you know, some of these shops are on like the third, fourth, fifth floor of buildings. They're just rows of sewing machines, rows of cutting machines. So there's different roles. Um, cutting and sewing are like the higher skilled jobs. So they were paid a little bit more. Sewing in zippers. So there would have been a special rows of like zipper sewing machines. Knowing how to do those was a really highly skilled. And then you have people that were just like sewing hems and they would have been on another floor with just like general sewing machines. But it would have been tight, small, um, many of these shops were, we'll say, you know, not inspected, you know, not unionized. Um, and then you look at where Crystal Lee worked in the South, you had a range of mills. So she's, she worked in both types. She worked in one mill that was like built in 1902 and they'd updated the, some of the equipment, but that would be like you know, 10 miles down the road from a mill built in like, you know, 1958, that was all modern. So I think, again, sometimes people have this idea of like technology moving along sequentially. But it, when you look at manufacturing, it doesn't like you can have people working in like at home making, you know, T-shirts and people in an old mill that's filled with lint and dust because it doesn't have proper ventilation. And then down the road, somebody working in a modern mill where they take the cotton in at the beginning, push it through, and by the end, it's got finished towels going out clean and dust-free on trucks. And that's where Crystal Lee ended up. She was not a sewer at the end. She actually was what was called a gift set operator. Which <laughs> Gift set operator is a fancy name for towel folder. So she folded towels, put them in fancy boxes, um, to be shipped to department stores for uh, retail sale. The that's that's fascinating. Uh, you know the the different conditions, and, and it certainly, uh, you know, I think as you were alluding to, like a lot of the those, you know, some of those working conditions still do persist to this to this day. You, you can see it uh, if you if you go to Midtown Manhattan, um, and you know, I'm very fascinated uh, by the ways in which. They were able to, you know, the, Maldonado and Sutton were able to uh, use their unions as vehicles for advocacy. So I, I was wondering if, if first you could talk a little bit about the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, how it operated and how Maldonado and others used it as a vehicle for advocacy. Yeah, so the International Ladies Garment Workers Union was incredibly um, active in Puerto Rico from the 1930s on. So it Again, people I think associate it with New York City, maybe a little bit with Chicago, but it really saw itself as an international. <laughs> and so it organized women in Quebec province, um, all the way down the East Coast and in Puerto Rico. And the first local that they had in Puerto Rico uh, really grew out of the women themselves in Puerto Rico were so angry in the 1930s with the Great Depression and with the U.S. manufacturers cutting them off and using the Southern mill hands instead. So this is a major unrecognized event in U.S. history because of that segmentation we were talking about earlier, like Puerto Rican history is Caribbean history and U.S. labor history is U.S. labor history. But here there was a, a major strike in, in 1934 of Puerto Rican needleworkers who walked out in the thousands uh, to protest the the wage cuts and the peace rate cuts, because many of them worked by peace rates at that time. That was why U.S. manufacturers liked to use them. They didn't have to pay an hourly wage. They could pay like by the peace, which is always a, a, a way to drive down costs. So the, these women walked out and there was... Um, a woman named Teresa Anglero who said, we need to unionize. We need to use this fervent of all of these angry women who are upset about their work conditions to try to organize. So she founded a local of needleworkers. And when the International Ladies Garment Workers found out, they sent a representative, Rose Posada, from New York City to go down to uh, San Juan and Ponce where, and Mayajuez, where most of these women were walking out 
and to try to help organize them. Because I think that's a really difficult thing that I think a lot of folks are just like, why don't workers just create unions? <laughs> like that would be so great. Um, but it's so hard to, to move from the phase of people's discontent and disruption to then take that and funnel it into organization where you say, okay, we're gonna actually come to an agreement. What do we want? What, what's our objectives? What are our wage demands? You know, Who's gonna be the leadership of this? Are we gonna strike or not? Um, then even if you get to that point, then how do you sustain that once the work, once the, you know, workplace managers and then even the business owners figure out, oh, shoot, this is happening. <laughs> we need to try to squelch this. How are you then going to stand up to that anti-union backlash that's going to come from your managers and employers who are going to threaten you with firing you or closing your workplace? So that's why, that's where big unions like the ILG are so important. And that's why locals end up affiliating with nationals is because it is so hard to sustain it at the local level without some type of systemic support. So Rose Posada went down and she and Teresa Anglero um, did manage to establish the first ILG local in Puerto Rico in 1935. Um, and uh, it, it was there for quite a number of years and it helped try to fight to try to hold on to the basic minimum wage. They lost that fight, but they did end up at least raising the peace rates, even if they couldn't keep the FLSA minimum wage that was passed later. Um, they tried to demand it, but Congress, U.S. Congress, with the support of Puerto Rican business owners, uh, passed an exemption um, uh, in, in a, I think it was like 1939, the exemption actually went through. But so many Puerto Rican women in those cities uh, knew about the union. Many rural women, just like in the South, this is true in the South too, rural women that did piecework or did bundled work that then contractors picked up they tended to not know about the union. And that's always been a struggle for the ILG. How do you reach women in rural areas who are the most exploited, who are working for basically survival and will do just about anything to survive? It's very hard to organize them because they're geographically spaced out and they are so desperate for income that they'll generally do the work um, even, even if they don't like it and even if they understand they're being exploited. But many Puerto Rican women in the cities then, when they eventually move to New York City and are working up there, they are aware of the ILG. And many of them have aunts or grandmothers that if they weren't in the union had heard about it. And so I call it like the archive of memory in the kitchen table, right? So it's never been, you know, it's not documented. It's not in some like big university library. But if you know women and you know women workers, you know they're sitting around talking at the break table and the kitchen table. And so Maldonado would have heard about this. And so when she joins her union, um, it's still dominated by men in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, white men are still in the leadership, even though it's called the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. <laughs> Ladies are not in the key leadership positions. Um, but a, a couple men in leadership see Gloria Maldonado and they're like, she's got something. She she can speak to a public audience. She has organizational skills and she becomes an education director. And there's a couple photos in the book of her. Um, this is part of why I used her, even though there's so few Puerto Rican women workers in the archive who get massive attention. There are There were a couple photographs of her. Um, and then she also eventually became a uh, lead organizer as well, organizing women. And it really was a passion for her to try to get women in non-union shops to try to be willing to join the ILG. And similarly with, with Crystal Lee Sutton, uh, with the Textile Workers Union of America, uh, how did she get involved and what was her advocacy like? So for, for Crystal Lee and her family, there was a longer history of union breaking in the South. So when unions tried to go in, in the Southern US in the like 1890s and early 1900s, the Southern mill towns were so isolated physically and socially that 
they and many of them were company towns. So the the mill workers lived in property owned by the company. They had credit at the general store, and it was a very paternalistic, family based kind kind of a isolated community. Now the companies weren't isolated. These companies have connections to you know New York City commodities traders, Chicago commodities traders. There you know have factories in New England and New York. So the companies are not isolated, but they've isolated their workers. That it's very hard for the unions to succeed there. Um, in the 1920s to 1940s, multinationals start buying up these family companies. So as a result, they they don't want to own these housings. So when you're a big company like J.P. Stevens or Burlington or, you know, um, any of these large, massive multinationals, you don't want to be owning your workers housing anymore. You have, you know, 300 factories and massive global shipping lines to keep track of. So many workers then start to own their own housing or rent apartments or rent the housing um, from landlords. Um, they don't have the same kind of paternalistic connections to the, the family, like the Patterson family owned all the mills in, in you know, um, uh, the Burlington Haw River area. So then you feel like, well, we're all part of the same community. As that disperses, you have more and more people, particularly uh, younger workers who are willing to think about the union. Older workers are a little bit more nervous that if we allow the union to come in or try to join the union, we're going to be fired and the, the, the mill is just going to close because that's what the families did in the early 1900s. They would just close mills, lock people out, kick people out of their homes. So there were a lot, the, the union busting in the early 1900s was really brutal. The other thing that changes, and this is what makes Crystal Lee's participation possible, is the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So the Civil Rights Act has the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and it has that employment cannot be uh, discriminated on the basis of race. Many, many mills would, would never even consider Black workers, even in the midst of the longest strike, um, because they wanted to keep mills segregated. They did not want an interracial class-based alliance forming. They didn't want any type of connections between white and black workers. Um, and also they were trying to reinforce the elitist white supremacy in which black workers did the lowest paid, dirtiest, heaviest, uh, most marginalized work. Um, and it created some sense of white superiority even amongst white workers. So playing off these racial divisions had been really important. But the Civil Rights Act breaks that because the federal government says, we will not have contracts with factories in the South. And World War II had made it so that many Southern mills produced large quantities of products, uniforms, socks, you know, parachutes, all types of equipment for the US military. And so defense contracts had been, had become a very core part of the industry. Um, Another part of women's history that's often like left out is that they're a big part of this, you know, the, the movement of big capital into the South and Southwest as part of these defense contracts. It's not all for weapons and, and um, uh, things more openly associated with the military. So because of the federal contracts, the federal government starts to hold money back from these factories and the NAACP and the unions like the Textile Workers Union of America start suing these companies. And of course, the companies drag it out. But eventually, the southern mills are forced open and black workers are much more willing to join the Textile Workers Union of America. The black workers are part of this like surging civil rights activism. They've seen the success of lawsuits. They've seen the success of the Civil Rights Act. They've seen that collective organizing is what got all that to happen. And they're much more willing to join the union. But the majority of workers in the Southern Mills are still white women. And so the, even with the incredible surge of black membership, the union commits to recruiting as many white women as possible. And Crystal Lee, She's not anti-racist. I never want to portray her as some like radical anti-racist, but she doesn't comply with Jim Crow the way other 
white residents do. She's willing to go to a black church to hear a union speaker. She's willing to have black workers in her house, even if it's going to mean being ostracized or even um, like verbally abused by, you know, her coworkers or her managers. She says, you know, we need to organize and we're all mill workers. And so she's willing to join an interracial union drive. And when she joins, she is almost immediately, like within five weeks, her activism gets her fired, which becomes the basis of the movie um, be because she is this very vocal, active union member. So whereas Maldonado has many, many years with the ILG, Crystal Lee has a much shorter span of time with the Textile Workers Union. She eventually becomes a paid organizer, even though she doesn't work in the mill again um, because you get blacklisted for being fired for union work. But she does um, she does become an organizer, but it's just for a brief amount of time. How did she become a popular media figure, one that would eventually inspire the Norma Rae movie? Yeah, so... The, the firing happens at a time when a freelance writer for, out of Atlanta, Georgia, is looking for a big article to try to sell about this big union drive. So the Textile Workers Union of America has been trying to organize against J.P. Stevens, this huge company headquartered in Massachusetts, but that has a lot of factories that it's bought up and built in the South. And it's been getting a lot of media coverage. And this guy is a middle-class white man. He's not, he doesn't have family in the mills, but he knows about them. And so he decides he wants to do a story on it. And he calls the headquarters in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. And the organizer gives him a list of like four or five people. And one of them is Crystal Lee. And she's a good talker. Like she and Maldonado were both great talkers. Uh, they're both like attractive, appealing women and mothers. So they have all these kind of criteria that make them appealing. But most important for Crystalia, she's white, she's young, and she is willing to be somebody who will speak out against the mill. Some people won't do that because they're afraid that they and their family members will get blacklisted from the primary jobs in, in that region. So she becomes the center of an article that he writes for, and it, the New York Times Magazine ends up picking it up. It publishes it in uh, 1973. Ms. Uh, some folks at Ms. Magazine, which has just started. So Ms. is looking for a hot topic. Um, and they see this article in the New York Times. And at the same time, they get a grant from PBS to develop a one hour documentary about women and feminism and women's liberation. And they pick Crystal Lee as one of their segments. And the guy that wrote the New York Times article gets a contract to do a biography about Crystal Lee. So from that one New York Times article, you get these other media moments. And Crystal Lee says, I was willing to do it because I wasn't afraid and somebody needed to speak up for the union and I thought it would be good for the movement. So she's, she, loved, she loves the spotlight. I'm not saying she doesn't love the spotlight, but she also is always articulating a very clear vision of like, I'm doing this for the labor movement. I'm doing this for union education. I'm doing this so working people know what the unions do and how they help working people by organizing by getting collective bargaining agreements by making demands on managers and owners so she she you know she steps into the spotlight and uses it effectively um but i think most importantly she it, this wouldn't have happened without women's liberation it was the 70s pop media was looking for stories that fed into that kind of media frenzy that was going on you have women like gloria steinem and betty friedan and shirley chisholm um, and uh, they are getting attention as uh, feminists. And so here comes this woman who's outspoken and, you know, it's a great, you know, marketable story. What resemblance does Crystal Lee's experience have to the Norma Ray story? Uh, and how did she react to the movie? The initial script was actually called Crystal Lee. So they they did take the biography and they did speak, the producers and the screenwriters and the director did speak to her. Um, and so the script was called Crystal Lee. It almost followed her life 
as far as a focus on her as a mother and a, a mother who's working. Uh, but they strip out all of, they stripped out of the script, all of the black workers who did the initial organizing. They made it seem like Crystal Lee was the person who started the, the union. And the union had already been organizing for 10 years in Roanoke Rapids by the time she got, got into it. So she immediately started pressing against the screenplay. She said she wouldn't sign a release. She said she wouldn't support the Crystal Lee script. She said that they made it seem like it was only her when it was so many other people and she didn't like certain parts of the story that they had altered. So at that point, in order to get insurance, because films need to have insurance to guard against liability lawsuits, and, and the insurance company said to the producers and the director, like, we're not going to insure you because she has liability, <laughs> you know, valid liability claims against this production. You're taking her story and she's just telling you you can't. Um, so they so the producers director and worked with 20th Century Fox, which was the studio they got the contract with. They went through and they changed the names. So they changed Crystal Lee to Norma Ray. They changed J.P. Stevens to O.P. Henley. They moved a couple, like they moved a couple names around. They changed it so that she only had two kids instead of three. But the big key moments of the movie are her life. Like she did do that. But the whole background of the union, the union movement, the labor organizing, all of that is stripped away still. So they did what she didn't want Crystal, you know, what Crystal Lee didn't want them to do. And they've just made it seem like it's only Norma. She did the whole thing with this one union organizer. And the whole thing is successful in the matter of two months, not, you know, 12 years, which is what it actually, you know, took to get, you know, a, a union vote and then to get into collective bargaining negotiations. Um, and it's also unrealistic because at the end, she's left just standing by herself. Norma just is standing alone as the union organizer drives off as if like a single union vote wraps up the <laughs> wraps up the whole issue. And in reality, even though Crystal Lee was fired from the mill, as I said, the union hired her as an organizer and she was inside during the vote. Uh, her vote was put to the side as contested by J.P. Stevens, but she was inside. She was with workers. She was part of the union. The union organizers stayed in town for years afterwards to continue member organizing and to continue the collective bargaining negotiations. So the, the end of the movie is really demoralizing to me because it really strips away everything that Crystal Lee stood for and everything that the labor movement had succeeded at in Roanoke Rapids. What impact did the Norma Ray film have on culture, particularly the perception of union and American workers? You know, one of the negative impacts was that the union decided to throw itself behind the movie. So the union said, we love Norma Ray and it's great. Right as that is happening, there is a successful corporate campaign going on against J.P. Stevens. A corporate campaign is when a union starts to go to the company's creditors, shareholders, insurance companies, and like board of directors, and starts pressuring them to cut off credit, cut off loans, quit boards of directors, and cut ties with a company. And so right as the movie is coming out and the union decides to say, we're going to celebrate Norma Ray. This corporate campaign is coming to a head and all the executives at J.P. Stevens said it's the corporate campaign that forces them to eventually agree to the contract. But of course, what happens in the mainstream media is Norma Ray got the got the J.P. Stevens workers, their union contract and completely wipes out that there was a decades long campaign you know, years and years of strikes and walkouts, uh, years of contract negotiations, lawsuits, EEOC and NLRB grievances, hearings that all of that gets wiped out by the movie. And, all, and, you know, and in mainstream, I saw this in multiple mainstream newspapers and magazines like J.P. Stevens signs, you know, contract, you know, thanks Norma Ray. <laughs> 
So that was an unfortunate uh, thing. But uh, but the movie was successful at at least expanding ideas of the American working class to include women. It still doesn't really include people of color. It definitely doesn't include Puerto Rican women. Um, but it at least starts to make visible the idea of white women as manufacturing, you know, textile, you know, and apparel workers. You argue that cultural terrain is just as important as political leverage for the labor movement. Why do you make this case? You can have as many workers as you want. And we see that with the ILG and the TWUA is that you can have as many workers as you want join and become members. But if they don't have status in the larger cop, you know, uh, conversation in the larger population as deserving workers, they are not going to be as successful at putting pressure on employers, putting pressure on corporations, being valued during walkouts and strikes. And we see that time and again, you know, right now, the United Auto Workers just did a very successful wave of strikes across several different factories. Um, many of the Im images that they put up looked like the conventional idea, you know, this kind of cultural narrative of these white men in factory jobs. At the same time, we have women workers who are domestics and nannies and certified nurses aides, many of them immigrants, women of color or low wage um, and, and uh, working class white women who are also struggling with union organizing and strikes and they don't get nearly the coverage. You know, they don't get nearly the support because the idea again is like, well, they're women, they wanna take care of people. It, well, no, it's their paid job and they're trying to unionize the same way the UAW is, but you don't have the same cultural terrain and I think you also see the same thing with like immigrant workers right now. Our food system is entirely dependent upon undocumented immigrant workers. We have low costs of lettuce, tomatoes, chicken, chicken nuggets. All of that stuff is because of undocumented immigrant workers. But the cultural narrative is these illegals are coming and taking our job. And so the you you know, I sometimes think in a strange way, the cultural narratives is actually more powerful and more influential than economic statistics, because you can give people economic statistics to no end about women workers, you know, women of color workers, service workers, undocumented immigrant workers, and people still, the power of that cultural narrative for framing what policies they will support, what workers they will support, what wage laws they will support is is really um, amazing to see over and over again. I, you've gotten into it quite a bit with with the different myths about about working class women. Um, but you know, are, are there any other myths that, you, that your book really seeks to dispel uh, and some of the realities that that you think that you're really trying to highlight? Yeah, we ended up talking a lot about um, the mythologies and, and dominant narratives, but I, for me, it's just really important to also go at the myth that women only get involved in unions because they want better lives for their children or their families. In both cases, Maldonado and Crystal Lee and many others talk about going into unions because it gave them a sense of purpose. It gave them a sense of meaning in their life made them feel part of something bigger than, than, than themselves. Of course, they said they love their children and they want better lives for their children. It's not that. But right as equal with that is wanting to fight against class femininity and the idea that they couldn't be leaders or that they couldn't be organizers. They they want to do those things. You, you also alluded to this too with the, the UAW strikes. But you know, in recent years, there's been a, a pretty major union revival in the United States. Uh, what insights does your study of women union leaders have for today? I think just in general, getting more labor history out there. And that's why I love um, like Kim Kelly's book, which has had like a big success in more mainstream general audiences. And I, I hope my book can reach some general audiences too, is just having a sense of history that that you're not inventing the wheel. You're not some strange person or, or some aberrant worker because you want to make better conditions, that you're part of a long and honored and, and really inspirational history of workers who have demanded better conditions, better treatment, and have pushed 
not just for their immediate changes, but for changes to federal policy, to international trade law. You know, capitalism doesn't become better for workers without workers demanding it. And I think we need to really acknowledge that, that minimum wages, wages going up weekends, um, quotas on international trade, limits on international capital movement, those all come because collective workers demanded certain things. Um, and then also just that cultural narrative matters. The, I think corporations, you know, have millions to spend on marketing. So we're never going to, we're never as labor activists going to be able to stand up to that level of marketing um, and lobbying. But the the labor movement needs to get much better at national cultural narrative and how it argues for its and i think that that's one of the reasons the uaw is so successful too is that sean fain did the whole eat the rich and and we're we're making the wealth you know so instead of the whole let's all work together to make business better he went he went at the the corporations and he reclaimed this narrative that the corporations are gouging us and exploiting us and that's that's goes back into union history that those were some of the original labor activist narratives that get lost in the 20th century um and so i think you know it's important to have local culture you know and you see that successful locals you know celebrate local holidays and their local ethnic communities and they have lunches and they have um, developed certain rituals and celebrations but you also need attention to the national cultural narrative well amy thank you so much for that that was you know it, you, you you really dove in and gave incredible background history on on the workers uh you know women workers and unions um uh you know very i think this is very fascinating and I definitely recommend people check out Beyond Norma Ray, how Puerto Rican and Southern white women fought for a place in the American working class. Um, you know, like you said, it's you know for for a general, it's probably it's a it's a good book for for you know scholars and, and a general audience alike. It's very very clear and uh, well written. Um, Thanks so much, thank you Caleb. So I really appreciate you having me on. It was a great conversation.